0: So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. Certainly before, but definitely with the advent of the iPhone in 2006, digital devices entered our lives and changed so many parts of it. What effect has that had on our definition of literacy and citizenship and on our understanding of socialization?
1: So I'm Carrie Gallagher. I am the assistant principal for teaching and learning at St. John's Prep in Danvers, Massachusetts. And I'm also the director of K-12 Education for connectsafely.org.
2: Fantastic. So I know um, a, a little bit about your background and actually a quick story for all our listeners. Um, Carrie and I went to St. Anselm College together in Manchester, New Hampshire, but I don't think we ever actually crossed paths while we were there.
1: No, which is weird because it's not a big place, but...
2: Yeah, it's a tiny little school. It's like going to a high school-sized college. So this is odd. My my first recollection of um, kind of like sitting down and hearing about your ideas was at MassQ um, a number of years ago. And it was like a really small group, kind of like a breakout group. And we were talking about going paperless. And mm-hmm. it was like discussions about using Google Docs on a phone when that wasn't really possible. And all the challenges that were posed. And I know you did a lot of work early on with um, a paperless classroom. But more than like the technology behind a paperless classroom, more about like the value added and the, kind of the, the benefit to the student with regards to going paperless and what that whole process is like.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, before Google released their, you know, Google for education suite, um, using Google Docs and Google Drive with students was something that I definitely saw value in just in the way it um, made it easier for them to collaborate, but also it made it easier for me to give them feedback faster. I just found the whole, um, the efficiency of commenting and and communicating with them via Google Docs much better than writing comments and margins, which is always my least favorite part of being a teacher. <laughs> yeah,
2: I bet everyone's right. So yeah. that was that was kind of like my first introduction to the work that you've been doing in education and educational technology. But what, what have you been up to now? So what are you thinking about these days and where has your work taken you?
1: So obviously, we've come a long way since then. I think, Greg, that was probably like at least ten years ago, right?
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Right. So, um, so now the past three years, I spent as a digital learning specialist, coaching teachers um, on instructional strategies using, mainly focusing on using technology at St. John's, which is a one-to-one iPad school. Um, and now I've started this new role about a month and a half ago as assistant principal of teaching and learning. So my role encompasses some technology, but also. Generally, just sharing as much research on innovative instructional practices as possible with our teachers through our teacher induction program, our teacher evaluation program, some professional development programming and and stuff like that. So the idea that technology is not its own thing anymore, that it's um, a part of it's an inherent part of teaching and learning and it's an inherent part of how we communicate, work with our students, how they create, how they communicate with each other is really encouraging because I. um, I just, for a long, for the past at least five or six years, I've struggled with the fact that um, digital, you know, instructional coaches have been viewed as, as a separate role from regular instructional coaches. And now I'm seeing my school bring those two worlds together, which is wonderful. So I've been thinking about mostly the word literacy and what that means. So for a long time, we've thought of literacy as reading and writing, but now I think of literacy as, um, digital literacy, media literacy are sort of the new literacies that we should be focusing on just as much as the traditional sense of literacy.
0: Okay, so then let's maybe a good place to dive into this is let's talk about like your thought process on thinking about literacy and maybe how are you defining it? How have, How is uh, that definition evolved in your mind since you started looking into the subject?
1: Yeah, so like I said, I, I think, you know, it all started, you know, the 10 years ago when I started using collaborative documents with my students for them to create and communicate. And really literacy is the set of skills that allows you to communicate effectively with other people, right? So for a long time that meant reading and writing. Um, and it maybe meant some public speaking, but now in order for you to communicate, for any of us to communicate effectively with other people, we need to not just be able to master reading and writing and interpreting um, text effectively, we need to be able to communicate using um, animations, using audio, using video, and we need to be able to use the tools that allow us to create those things effectively. And so those are the two new literacies. Digital literacy is the ability to use the tools to create those things, and media literacy is the ability to produce and interpret media that other people create in order to effectively communicate or understand what they're trying to communicate to you.
0: You know, Carrie, right now, Greg, I know that Greg is like super excited because in the last few weeks on Twitter, I've seen a lot of conversations he's having about like, what is literacy defining literacy? And you should probably know that one of the reasons that we're doing a podcast is we just really believe that you, if you have a message or a story that you want to get out, the whole project behind So We've Been Thinking is to tell everyone's stories, to get our stories out there and to share other people's. But um, right now, audio is a, a place where it just connects with so many people, like the technology is right, the infrastructure is right, and you can reach people. And we were talking about is is, is it our responsibility as teachers to make students uh, able to communicate or help students to develop the ability to communicate in that way? And and can we call, um, if, are we gonna say that a person is literate if they can't communicate in most of the other areas of communication that are available to us? like? do we have to go past, they can read and they can write to say like, but you can't make a movie and making video is becoming a more and more important part of what it means to be uh, literate in our society. How, like, how are we communicating across with all these other people? So I like your definition because it, in my mind, it's saying we need to allow students to communicate with people, to share their stories and get their, their thoughts out there. Greg? Uh, yes, it's-
2: yes to all of the above, <laughs> yes right. to Carrie, yes to Sean. Um, <clears throat> That I was I was I asked that question recently, and the most thoughtful response I got was from Scott McCloud, who basically said he echoed exactly what you're saying, Carrie. But then he added one more idea, and he added the basically the concept of um, and the most kind of like prevalent uh, form of media in your time. So this is, so it's like that little, that subtle change to what it means to be literate. I thought, oh, that's exactly it. That's the piece I've been missing because I think sometimes it's easier for, it's easy for people to say, well, I, I don't like, you know, whether it's podcasting, making video, um, a social media platform, like I'm, I'm thinking about the implications of media literacy when it comes to like Instagram TV, because it's so new and people haven't figured it out yet. And that's the platform of the time, but it doesn't mean we disregard it because it's going to go away because it is the platform of the time now. So with all that said, I wonder what you, like, what, is there a process you work through? Is there a framework that you use? Is there a mindset that you use to get kids to start to become more comfortable with these different forms of media?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, so first of all, with Connect Safely, I co-authored the um, Parent Educator's Guide to media literacy and fake news. And the trigger for that was sort of the the fake news whirlwind that began with the election, um, with the presidential election. But now it seems like it's taken on another life because of all the things that the two of you were just talking about. I think the best way for me to talk about this, Greg, is to, I think you and I have kids that are similar ages, is to talk about how I work with my own children on this. Because I know, so my kids are six and nine, and I know that they're not learning how to um, you know, storyboard, create, and then edit video in school just yet, because I think most school systems think of that as a skill that's too advanced for a six and nine year old. But I feel like that's a literacy that my kids should know. Um, and so we've started, you know, doing that at home for fun together, like little video projects, because I think that that's a skill that they should be able to use to communicate with the world the way they want to. I also will sit On my phone with my girls on either side of me and scroll through my Instagram or scroll through my Facebook and we'll talk about what we see and we'll talk about why we like something or why you might comment on something and what that means and how that is effectively communicating with the people who made those posts. And I just think all of those are really important literacies that I want my children to learn. Again, like Facebook might go away, but they've learned where the platforms that they'll be engaging on came from, where the roots are. And they will have built those skills over time. So I think when when I talk about this with um, parents um, from my own school community at St. John's or sometimes other districts will bring me in to do some parent programming. And I explain that I do this with my own children. Some parents are a little critical, like, really, you spend your time teaching your kids about social media and they're nine and six, you know. But I really do think that that's something that it's my duty to teach them how to communicate effectively with people in lots of different ways. Just like it's my duty to teach them how to, you know, eat a meal with proper table manners because mm-hmm. of how that is sort of sharing space and time with people. When you're love,
0: yeah. it's, this resonates with me so strongly because I'm thinking about how sometimes um, education sees certain forms of communication as purely social and outside of the educational realm. And we tend to focus on some more traditional things like no teacher is going to abdicate the responsibility for teaching writing or, or to, to speak many times. But um, I think that um, our students are out there communicating using these tools and if we abdicate the responsibility to help them to see the true power of them and we only let them tap into the surface level or like the, um, the, the, the socially obvious uses of that technology, we're really missing um, helping them to understand communication in general more deeply. Like why things work and how they work and the pitfalls of that. So in the same way that you would sit with a young child to do that, I think we need to do that with junior high and high school students. I wonder, you know, is it, should we be out there helping them to communicate more effectively, more appropriately in some of the more, I don't know, they might be faddish to say Instagram TV, but as a history teacher, I can't, I can't prevent myself from diving into historical stuff right now. So everyone just, Forgive me for talking in history right now. Um, You know, long ago, um, I I took an African-American, excuse me, an African history class, and they talked about the the most dominant forms of communication, and music was such an important cultural part, and it was compelling, and it was, singing songs about the past really conveyed culture to the people who sat around a, a fire or sat around at family events, and that was meaningful communication, and it was just song. But in the same way, cave art, is the same thing. Like there was a time when, how do you communicate with anyone? But if you put pictures on a wall and powerful images that had symbolism, it it was meaningful, It's meaningful to the point where we can look at it today and, and it's our only portal into that time in some ways. So I think that maybe we're leaving value on the table by not taking on a discussion of some of these forms of communication.
1: I mean, there are people who have built entire businesses off their social media presence, right? Yeah. And they're incredibly successful and they continue to, as new um, platforms emerge, like um, Instagram TV, for example, start testing it out and um, sharing their broadcast there. And, you know, move. They're, they're the ones who are setting the tone for how we use all these um, future platforms because they tend to be the first one to try them out since they've depended on them to reach their customers and their audience. So, I mean, all you have to do is take a look at how those other people are using it and notice that if, if that's one way to successfully build a business shouldn't those be skills that we're teaching our children so they're prepared for you know operating the businesses of the future I don't know it just seems like it makes a lot of sense
2: yes it's, it's completely aligned um, and people come to when you said that idea like people come to mind that are leveraging those platforms really well mm-hmm. and they're doing it effectively my question for you then is: How do you help? How do you help a teacher um, that is either uncomfortable with, unfamiliar with, or doesn't know where to go next to make like an incremental change to start to adopt this way of thinking and then be open to the idea of using methods of communication? and new ways of thinking about literacy that they likely were not trained in in their teacher prep program it might not even be part of their evaluation process of the culture of the school how do you make that first step
1: yeah that's a really tough question especially when there's definitely a handful of teachers in every school who aren't even on social media because they don't see it as a value a valuable way for them to communicate with the world they hear all the sort of horror stories around these other literacies, these other media. And they think that, you know what, I'd rather teach them the more traditional things that we know have value concretely, um, because they have for generations and generations. So how you make that first step is interesting. I think there's there's some really easy things that you can do. Like everyone knows what memes are, right? So even if you're not really on social media, you're gonna see memes out on even billboards and places like that so that's a great way that's a great little gateway activity because you know you were talking about about history sean and i'm a history teacher myself um taking a historical image teaching you know children about the background behind that image whether it's artwork or a photograph or whatever and then asking them to create a meme out of it is a really simple activity that allows kids to um demonstrate that their mastery of the concept and it allows them to communicate it in a way that they're familiar with and that they have value behind and then if the teacher still wants them to write a little paragraph or essay about it then they can and that way you're, you're blending the traditional forms of assessment with some newer forms of, of assessment and I think that's a great way to get teachers taking those baby steps to moving towards some of those um, teaching some of those more innovative literacies that we're talking about.
2: It's, it's really interesting that you brought that up because you're not the first person on the show to mention the use of memes in an educational setting. Uh, we had Amy Burvall on in a previous episode and her whole idea was like you uh, effectively leveraging remix. And she mentioned the use of memes. But Sean, you have to remind me, was it it wasn't distillification. What was the term she used?
0: Distillustration.
2: Distillustration. So right. we-,
0: we make a picture you take an idea and you simplify it as much as you possibly can into the most simplified, like, image, memes, symbolism to, to show that you really know and understand it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a, an art teacher, one of our middle school, our middle school studio art teachers takes um, really famous paintings and asks students to use some um, Adobe apps. And I think it's like a combination of three different Adobe apps on their iPads and they she asked them to really focus on just one element of the painting and then she asked them to use filters and other colors and everything to change the way the image actually looks to produce their own original image out of a very famous painting by you know someone like Rembrandt or something Um, and then make it so that it has meaning for them so um, they're getting a chance to really make contact with some famous artwork in a way that I never did. Like we would go and see famous artwork um, at the MFA, for example, and like walk around the museum and look at it and journal, but we didn't really get to interact with it the way that she's allowing her students to do. And I think that um, that's a really great example of another literacy, the idea of remixing what someone else has Created, even if it's, it doesn't, you don't have to remix only new stuff, you can remix some of the older stuff that we really honor as a culture, and that's a new skill, a new literacy that we should be teaching our children how to do. Some of the resulting work that our students have created that hangs around the school is incredibly impressive, and they wouldn't be able to do it without the digital literacy of the tools, um, you know, the literacy of being able to analyze that that very old artwork, Um, and being empowered by their teacher to use a combination of those traditional and more innovative literacies together.
0: Um, You know, you were talking about, as a history teacher, talking about looking at pictures and evaluating sources, and it made me think of this book that I've loved. It's by a guy named Louis P. Mazur. It's called The Soiling of Glory, and there's a a chapter in it that talks about famous photographs and how they've been used and how they've been manipulated. And if you don't know about the story, there was a, a... an incident in Boston where a man who was protesting was attacked by someone with the American flag, but it turned out that he really wasn't, that that wasn't the case. It's just that there was a picture that made it look that way. And um, like the, when I was, a t- you know, in the classroom, I used to take pictures like that and break them down. And I took a lot of time and I took a lot of pride in the way that I would take this image and break it down and get the background story in the context. And I think that one of the things that we can really do to help is to do that same thing with memes, because memes are funny, but they're funny because they pack such um, meaning on them.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, if
0: you, for me for a meme to make sense, you really have to get uh, they're playing on something or they're making social commentary on those things. Right. And I think that if we if we start thinking about that content as like really important, like those those memes and ideas as important classroom content, I think we have such great potential to help our students understand the world. I think a lot of times a lot of kids get them, but some don't because there's some nuance that's missing. So um, if you could give advice to teachers, right, a teacher who doesn't know how to do this or a teacher who's been in the classroom and um, maybe the idea of memes is something that they're still trying to wrap their head around, how would you suggest, say, a junior high, high school student or or maybe advice for younger students, um, they get started in the process of, of, Uh, using these things in their classroom.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if meme isn't the gateway that there's, there's something right. So even like my, like my teachers who are not on social media, a lot of them listen to podcasts. So okay, why do you like podcasts? What is it about it that's entertaining or valuable for you that you decide to download them and listen to them on your commute? You know, and what if you broke broke down that podcast and why you like it? How could you use that structure that you just broke it down to, to teach your your students how to create a podcast? I mean, our sixth graders have created these amazing podcasts where they, um, they take on the personality of experts that they interview and it's very like NPR style. Um, And I'm not sure that our sixth graders listened to NPR, but their teacher did. And she found value in, you know, her daily, you know, listening to NPR on her drive in. And so she broke that down so that her students were um, producing these, these really awesome final results. And as a part of the process, they were still researching, they were writing, they were working together Um, all of those, you know collaboration, those all those skills that are are also valued in more traditional um, assessments, and it resulted in a much more modern um, product. So I, I just think I think in in any case with, specifically with the coaches of teachers i think the best way to figure out how to move those teachers along who are hesitant is to really get to know your teachers what is it that they value in their lives and how can you help them bring that to their classroom so it's as with everything else in education it comes down to relationships you rather than forcing a teacher to have their students create like a 10-minute documentary you know when the idea of video editing feels insurmountable start with um you know, a media style or a media product that they find value in because people are much more likely to grasp onto something that they value rather than trying to force them to find value in something that they don't.
0: I think that's great advice because, you know, if there's something that you've dug into that you have a nuanced understanding of, it's a lot easier for you to break it down and help convey that nuance to your students.
1: Yeah, and giving teachers an opportunity to share their really great work with each other is, is um, an important Construct in schools, and it's it's that's I think the the biggest challenge for administrators is finding time when teachers are around and kids are not, and teachers can share some really great examples of student work. Because once teachers see what their colleagues are doing, there's a lot of oh I can do that I never thought of that you know, and I can use that mm-hmm. idea in this different way in my classroom. Um, and you know, I don't know I think I think that's that's always a challenge, and there's no one solution because every school has to find their own solution for that. You know just playing and all of that
0: and because the day is busy and there's much to do and you know taking the time that you have available and and making it a time where we can sit and talk Mm. sometimes it can be really hard to do
1: but i mean a good place to start is just start a school-wide conversation about what is literacy like what does it mean to us just like the way we started this whole conversation at the beginning right like what is it that we value and how our students should be able to communicate and interpret others' communications? And what are the different ways that they're already communicating that maybe we're not honoring in our classrooms just yet, that we should be? Wow,
2: that's a really interesting point. The the word honoring that you just said, i had that had never crossed my mind before. And it, it makes me think of um, uh, Henry Jenkins' participatory culture, where, have you come across this work, Carrie? No. So I, I highly recommend, I'll send you the link to it after the show, but this idea that students are engaging in, and uh, in this, this piece came out 10 years ago, students are engaging in this participatory culture via media and technology, and this was 10 years ago, mm-hmm. and then we, they come into our school, and normally it was, we don't allow them or we don't provide them the, the ability to engage in those cultures in our classrooms via technology, but this sort of like honoring who they are and what their life is and who they value It's pretty powerful stuff to say like maybe we need to reconsider the level at which we respect what their experience is outside of our classroom and and honor that a bit and say like we're willing to be open to these ideas the other thing that struck me a ton was when you talked about how like whether it's podcasting or video creation whatever the media is or the medium it still has like embedded in it research writing collaboration rewriting all that stuff is still happening behind the scenes but, but now you the final, like the deliverable, the export is maybe a form of media that is relevant today. It's not to say that linear writing on text is irrelevant, but there's other forms that are increasingly relevant or maybe more relevant if you want people to pay attention to who you are. This also makes me think of like Austin Kleon's idea of if your work is on, isn't online, it doesn't exist. It's yeah. a, maybe an extreme perspective to take but i don't think that that idea isn't going away
1: right right so there this what everything you just said um a couple of things number one my recent columnist for ed surge and my recent column is about this idea of um seeing some of these new student products that we're talking about as rooted in very traditional skills that are still you know invaluable for them to learn and not seeing that you know, adding new innovative processes to your teaching, it doesn't mean you have to throw out the old stuff, right? Like uh, there's nothing wrong with a great lecture. Some people are great lecturers and they should not be prevented from lecturing and nobody should demonize lecturing as like something that is, you know, going to be a problem for a student to experience. But what happens after the lecture is really the question. So blending that innovative and traditional is, is really important. And the the other thing that you said that, um, that really struck a chord with me is um, as you were talking about honoring students and and the way they communicate and the modalities that they use we don't want them to see school as separate from all the other skills that they're learning in their own lives they want us we want them to see that the skills that they learn in school will help make them better at the things that they value outside of school right Um, one of the things that it has been a hot topic at st john's prep and this might be because it's an all-boys school is the subject of gaming and do we, that like our students value gaming as an important way that they socialize and connect with one another, but many of the adults on campus do not. And they see gaming as pure distraction from things that are important. And so we're starting to try to have um, more conversations between the adults and students on campus to bring those perspectives a little bit closer together so that, you know, if even if the adults on campus are not gamers, they can start to understand what it feels like to be a gamer and how that helps, you know, build a friendship between two people. And it's especially for our boys at our school, because we're a private school. A lot of boys drive from far away to get here every day. And so their friends don't live a couple streets over. Like. What? like what happens in a public school and so the way they connect is through those those gaming platforms
2: this is fascinating sean can i can i do our follow-up that i I know that you're thinking the same thing so sean (laughs) like i'm not a gamer but i've recently started playing games and like sean and i outside of work time we game together at night occasionally and Mm -hmm. i think it's a really interesting point that you brought up because all it does is strengthen friendships and it might sound silly and like this, I don't know if this is like 100% appropriate, but if I drop an M16 for Sean to pick up so we can be a stronger team to continue our gameplay at night, like there there is some friendship development and like social bonding that's going on there. Or if while in the context of playing a game, like we might have, I might have a question about parenting. That is only going to come up because we're connected in that way. So it can't be dismissed as a pure waste of time. It is a distraction, but it can't 100% be dismissed.
0: And Greg and I have been talking about this idea that like when we, when we're doing that and we're gaming, we, we work together a lot, but we're never in the same room and we're rarely talking voice to voice. We talk more in the podcast than we do. Otherwise we, we chat by digital means. But it's an opportunity for us to be in a situation where you can, like you said, strengthen relationships, have conversations about things that are kind of, it prevents us from talking about work because we're focused on a different task that's a little lighter.
1: Right. So I, the way I draw a parallel and this is, I mean, so I'm in my thirties. So for any of us who are sort of in that age range and we're looking at our teenage students really hooked on, on gaming. And we see and you know, I, I know lots of my colleagues who are my age, they roll their eyes and they're like it's distraction it's pulling them away from what matters. I think about how much time I spent wandering aimlessly around the mall with my friends, but how important that activity was to building those friendships. And most of the time I didn't even buy anything. It was just about having a place to go to be in a place and be present with my friends. So and, you know, when, when you're when that's you're talking about that, that's what a game is for for our for our teenagers right now.
0: But as you're talking about the mall, I remember going to the mall as a teenager, and you know, and and pro, I, I'm I'm not sure when the great American decline of malls happened, but <laughs> you know, I grew up, I graduated from high school in 1989. I'm in my 40s and i remember walking around the mall and having these discussions about where are we going next and working like he wanted to go there and we created group goals and we had discussions about what we needed to do we shared resources Mm -hmm. we had discussions about where we're going to eat there's like you said it was important to me to have that time with my friends and we learned who we were to each other and i was sitting here thinking as you were saying you're talking about the mall you know, like, I know what kind of a, per- we're, we're talking way too much about our gaming life uh, here, at Greg, but uh, I know who shares and who doesn't. I yeah. know who will stand by you and support you and who doesn't. I know who, you know, like, a, a, a lot of your personality comes out in that. And I believe that there's socialization value in that, mm-hmm. um, that we don't like to think about, because I, I, I mean, this goes back to this idea of memes. I think that sometimes we dismiss pieces of our pop and participatory culture Mm -hmm. And we probably shouldn't be, because if we examine it, there's, again, there's value there and there's understanding that can be gained.
1: Yeah. I I mean, this all goes back to what we started talking about at the beginning, the idea of literacy, right? So it is, and it's like what you said, Greg, it's, it's the idea that you are able to communicate and interpret communication effectively in the media of your time. So if gaming is the, the socialization media of of this time, then allowing students to engage in that socialization is not a mistake. It's not a distraction. It's a part of how they build their relationships effectively. And it's the and like they're when they're our age in their 30s and 40s and their children are socializing in a different way they're going to shake their heads and wonder if it's the right thing and wonder if their kids are healthy, just like every generation has before. Um, just like our parents did about us I, all that time walking around those silly malls.
0: <laughs> you know, and I, I think there were norms for our life in that mall with our friends. Like there were yeah. norms, there, there were certain norms that were specific to my group of five friends in our car. And I think that we, as teachers, if you're a parent and you have the opportunity to watch your children Uh, socialize in an electronic, in like a gaming environment, there's a lot to be said there. My son plays Fortnite a lot and he plays, um, he does a lot with um, various other games, obviously. Um, And I think it's really interesting the way that his group of friends, they have rules, they have standards, they have like a set, there are certain principles, you don't let people down. And, and understanding what those norms within those spaces are becomes important to teachers exactly because when children who are being socialized with other children there come to school, we have to understand and unpack the norms that they have, and then kind of figure out how to mold those into the norms that exist in schools. So as we're talking here, I think that there's you know, probably a lot to be written about what those norms are and how, what, what impact they might have on schools in the future.
1: Yeah. And I think when adults are afraid to talk to kids about how they develop norms, norms on their gaming, they're afraid to just because they don't understand the gaming world, but that's a mistake because then the kids are developing norms without any guidance or discussion from adults. And I mean, I think, You know, kids certainly should have their own spaces that are away from adults, but they do need adult guidance on how to make those safe, those spaces safe and positive and supportive sometimes, because I don't know if you remember being a teenager, but I think sometimes I was a little overdramatic. I think it had something to do with the problems. (laughs) Um, and, And I know that teenagers are going through the same thing. So avoiding it and not talking about it and not valuing that form of communication or that literacy is a mistake because then kids are doing our are building those literacies without any adult um, guidance or help or support. And so even if you are not familiar with how they communicate in that space, asking them tons of questions about it um, and just listening rather than judging is probably the most important thing thing you can do to help them build their confidence and help them make sure that it's a positive experience for them.
0: I think my son would love to be in your class, Carrie, because he, he once said to me, Dad, I love those games. He loved at the time he loved Minecraft Uh and in school, when they were talking, he would bring that up in class. And he said that it's really hard to get people to listen and be excited about these things that I'm excited about because they just think it's silly games, Hmm. you know? And as a parent, I was like, wow, you know, sometimes that's true. Sometimes there's games that they play, especially when they get older that you're just like, well, it's just a game, but when it's really important to them and they're learning something from it, I think we can one, it just validates them. And if, if if a teacher can see the value in those experiences and and value them in front of their classes, I think that they both gain insight into who their students are. And they do right? I mean, and or or it comes off as if you're dismissing this place in this world that matters a lot to our kids.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, like my mom is at her sixties and she plays words with friends still with her older brother who's in his seventies. And so they actually communicate via that platform every single day. And she is now closer to that sibling than she is to any other, even though she's the youngest of six and he's the oldest of six, simply because they're playing words with friends. So if that's not a relationship built through gaming, like what is? And they're like senior citizens. <laughs> so <laughs> and everyone, it's real. Like and everyone it's... is doing it using the platforms that they're most comfortable with. And so rolling your eyes and passing it off as silly is a big mistake. Yeah. Right.
0: Those are real relationships to them. But I think that there's still so much dialogue, um, especially I, I saw an article in uh, a newspaper at the airport and, and walking by. And I think it's ironic because maybe the, the paper newspaper might lean towards traditional values a little bit, but it just basically said that it was um, it was talking about how the death of the snow day because of electronic uh, media Mm -hmm. And it said that, isn't this better to have students um, doing lessons on a snow day than it would be for them to just go home and play video games online? And it kind of had this dismissive quality to the discussion of using gaming. It was was such a charged value, like, oh, yes, well, you know, like a snow day, we're not going to throw the snow day away with talking to people and communicating and having relationships. We're going to do homework instead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It me it's funny. Really makes me think about how I spend my snow days with my kids. And that makes me sad that people assume. <laughs> <we don't. laughs> oh,
0: I, I absolutely will not be, I will not be doing homework on snow days. Thank
1: you. No, I'm like taking them outside and throwing them in snow bags. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> this, this is a, this is a completely unexpected turn to the conversation. I never thought we'd get into the idea of gaming. The gaming side of it is fascinating. And even to tie it into that idea of like the, the media of the day or the, the, most powerful media or platform of the time we can't dismiss it right like that's a, that's apparent we see value in it to shift to add like this to this third perspective so we've talked about creating content um we the gaming stuff was a fascinating twist in the conversation this third element and i know you do a lot of work around this and i've seen you present and talk about this idea and you, you mentioned it earlier is this idea of um like a fake news and the need to be literate, not in the way to create content, but to evaluate content. And I wonder if you could speak to that, like what kind of work have you done around helping kids navigate an increasingly complex media landscape where stories seem to break every day about uh, you know the biggest social media platforms in the world realizing that they've been taken advantage of and not doing enough to protect uh, you know the people engaged in those platforms and, and even extreme perspectives of like this could be a threat to democracy if our culture is not aware of the messages that are being sent to them
1: yeah so um, so as part of my work with connect safely we did some um, pretty significant consulting with the Yale Institute for Emotional Intelligence and the National Association of Media Literacy Education and the people who lead those organizations um, and talk to them a lot about what is it that, what are the skills that we need to build in adults and children in order for them to be able to navigate that landscape that's so complicated that you're talking about. And um, I think what we find is that this this is not just a teaching kids thing, this is a teaching adults thing that there are, for the most part, adults tend to rely on one or two um, sources for their news, and that is a mistake because um, it, it, it's funny. It used to be that when you when kids went online, the biggest thing we were worried about is them being contacted by a predator, right, and yeah. going meeting up with someone in person that they met online who they didn't know. And now we like hail people that we don't know and get in their cars and then pay them, <laughs> like
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: our phones, right? So. Um, so I think it's it's way more nuanced than that now. And the one thing that I do in my workshops when I talk about this that tends to blow the minds of the adults is I take four different news outlets and that doesn't mean like Facebook, which is where you might see someone post a link to a news outlet, like an actual news outlet, four different news outlets. And um, I have them go to the home pages and I say, pick the top two um, political news stories from today. and put them on a table and have them lay out the top two from each of those four um, news outlets on the, on the table, like in a Google doc or something. And I have them do it in small groups. And then we take that and we compare how many of the news outlets are reporting the same story using different language in their headlines. And how does the use, how does their word choice change the way you think about that story before you even read it? Right. Or which news outlets are reporting which news stories and which are choosing not to even report on those news stories. And right. Why are they making those choices? And if you're not going, if we aren't going to several different news outlets every single day, then we have to be okay with understanding that we don't know the whole story and believing that you know the whole story when you haven't consulted multiple different sources.
0: So Carrie, one of the things I like in what you were just saying is that Rather, digital citizenship isn't like a teacher lecturing on flag rules about citizenship or sharing a value out, um, that there's some practical activities that you need to do. And it's funny, um, the presentation I'm giving in Boston in November is about um, digital citizenship and digital literacy, but hands-on activities. Like, let's not just talk and say, it's not a cautionary discussion where we share it, there are practical things that you can do. I, I like your idea for comparing news articles. One of the things I've actually tried is you go to the the um, news agencies that provide like, um, like Reuters and AP that mm-hmm. give these distilled news sources, you have uh, students read those mm-hmm. and then you go out to all the news branches that are going to identify that like AP contributed, Reuters contributed, and see what they change because what they change is very specific language changes, very specific perspective changes. It's so easy to distill them when you have the, the root article that was used uh, to start with, right? right, right.
1: So, that's so that's just... That's just and, 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 color and analysis that changes the way it can be interpreted by... Exactly. So
0: for me, every time I discuss this topic, what you'll have is teachers who are just eager to raise their hand and say, here's this activity, this this thing that you can do. So what I want is I want things that they can do. So my presentation is going to be hands-on activities that do this. So um, you, you had mentioned one, how about, could you mention maybe a couple um, other activities that people might try if Mm -hmm. they're a teacher that's maybe not comfortable diving into this topic, or sometimes they try to, they they feel worried about this because they want to shy away from like politics and the difficult conversations of, of, of government in America today. Mm -hmm. But um, what are some things that you would suggest for people who are maybe not wise to this process that they could get in and do?
1: So the other really easy activity that's already kind of built for you is, was released by the Stanford history education group. When they released that study that said that, um, more than 80% of middle school students couldn't distinguish between sponsored content and a news story. On a
0: That's a great study. Also in that study was the idea that um, a majority of people who responded felt that it was the government's problem to solve, not our own.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so but built into, the, built into the PDF that reports out on, and you can just go and download this off the Shag site, is um, the homepage that they use in the study. And I've pulled that homepage up on screens in front of kids and in front of adults. And really pulled apart that homepage and pointed out the the little logo that's in the corner of ads when they're targeted ads versus the ads that are not targeted ads and explain the difference and how data scraping is used to figure out how things are targeted. And then you have the people that are sitting in front of you, like actually pull their phones out and scroll through their social media and talk about which ad is popping up for you versus which ad is popping up for you. And why are you not seeing the same ads? Um, Like I know I was just... Online last night looking for a dress for my brother's wedding. So I know all of my feeds are gonna be flooded with all these, like dress websites now for the next like week and a half. I just know that's gonna happen. Um, And I was uh, sitting next to my husband on the couch and he was like, have you seen this ad on Facebook? And he's showing it to me and he goes, what do you mean you haven't seen it? It's everywhere. And I'm like, it's everywhere on your Facebook, but it's not on my Facebook because we use those platforms differently. So that's like a really easy, quick activity that you can do with your students if you're comfortable with them pulling their phones out and scrolling through their social media while while they're in your classroom. Um, But it is effective because it's hands-on and it shows them exactly the differences and how, you know, they're interacting with maybe the same media platforms really immediately.
0: I kind of want to go back to that discussion about if you're comfortable with them taking out their phones. And I really, I, 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 this is just pure personal bias, but I really encourage teachers to get comfortable with them pulling out their phones because then we can start like, that's our way of supporting them. When, when I was with my son, he would, we were throwing a baseball around it was a, a regular league ball, and it was important that we do that so we could teach him how to protect himself. And you're know, like, like, it, like, there's some risk in it, but we can mitigate that risk by engaging with them. So, um, but I, I understand it's, it's a hard thing to do because there's a distraction factor in class when that happens.
1: I think it's really powerful though, because if, if you say, I want you all to take out your phones for this purpose, let's look at this together. And then the activity is over and you say, okay, now put them away, cause we're gonna do this if we don't need them. You're helping them learn when it's appropriate to take something out versus when it's appropriate to put it away if it's always put away you're sending this message unconsciously that it's never okay to have your phone out and that adults just they are judging you when you use it rather than sending the message that you know there are you know permissible and helpful uses and there are uses that maybe are distractions and if if you can help them learn the difference by doing it in your classroom with them, then you're helping them build, you know, those skills. Not to
0: mention the fact that when you make them put it away, it becomes contraband. And it, I mean, somehow that almost incentivizes taking it out in a way, right? If they know they're going to, it's important to them, it's a part of their life. And if they know that we're going to use it thoughtfully, Mm
1: -hmm. I think
0: that sends a really important message about like, use it thoughtfully.
1: Right. It's just such a weird mixed message that um, you know, parents are giving their children iPhones when they're like 10, 11, 12, um, because they're like, it's a safety thing. I need to be be able to contact you. And it's something that I want you to learn how to use. And then they go to school and teachers are like, no, it's a big problem. Like what kind of confusing message is that for an adolescent who's still trying to figure everything out? Um, it's just better to be able to teach them those, those smart uses.
2: Yeah wow this is it's when you when you brought up earlier like hey we're parents we have kids we need to help them navigate this landscape and i never once considered the mixed message they might be receiving and how 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 challenging that would be for them to navigate that based on like the values they have at home and the values that they feel are expressed in their classroom at school and maybe this the the work that you're doing can help align those and get people to understand like it, it, it's critical that the parent has a role in helping them develop literacy in the way they can at home and the teacher has a role in helping them develop literacy in the way they can at school um, right. so we there's pro we could probably go on and on and this conversation could go on for quite some time but we get to now get to the funnest part of the the podcast which is where we borrow slightly from inside the actor studio and ask you three questions that are not related to this conversation at all, but a little bit of personal insight into what um, surprises you or gets you thinking creatively. So are you ready? And we did not prep you for this one bit. So are you ready?
1: Uh, I guess I have to be. Yeah, Yeah, you you have no choice. (laughs) (laughs) You're capital.
2: Your captive. So, what is the song, the album, or the artist that you find yourself um, either playing on repeat or going back to often this summer?
1: Oh my gosh! So it depends on whether I'm with my kids or not. Um, if it's just me by myself, I am totally sucked into Lana Del Rey right now. I just like love her sound. Yeah. She's so like smooth and fun and sexy, and I love it. Um, and then when I'm with my children. They've been bouncing back and forth between Sean Mendes and Taylor Swift. And so there have been some pretty serious dance parties in my kitchen.
2: So. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Sean, I'll let you take the next one. Okay, so I'm gonna, st-
0: like, I-, I love the music one because um, every time Greg asks that question, I write it down and I'll spend the rest of the week listening to, y- you name it, whatever's been <laughs> suggested, right? Um, Amy Berval suggested the Peaky Blinders soundtrack. And I am stunned by how much I like that. (laughs) But I'm going to go a completely different way right now and ask you, like, what was your favorite toy when you were a little kid?
1: Oh, my Etch-a-Sketch. It was the best. Yeah, Yeah. hands down, Etch-a-Sketch. I also really liked my Barbies, but I I don't know. I feel like my Etch-a-Sketch lasted longer because, yeah, just the challenge of having to create something. And if you mess up, You either have to own that mess up and erase all your work or make that mistake turn into something that you didn't expect when you started. I I just kind of liked how that whole whole process worked, I think, when I was a kid.
0: I think I spent a a good portion of my life trying to figure out how to create a curved line on the edges. (laughs)
1: Like,
0: gosh, this is so hard. My hands need
2: to work together yeah so i'm gonna so sean totally threw me threw me off with that one we haven't done the toy question yet and that i'm gonna take a riff on that so uh, this is like either or question binge a show on netflix or read a book and then whatever your answer is what's the book or what's the show
1: oh that's well played well played i like both of those things a lot so the whole binge a show thing like i've never spent a whole day binging a whole series that's like not how my life <laughs> wait
0: till there's a snow day and it's too cold to go throw your kids in a snowbank
1: oh no we're skiers they okay
0: there you go no, never mind
1: they have to go outside but um, the book so right now we have two community reads going um, and so that's what I'm reading and one is called All American Boys and the other is called uh, Just Mercy and they're both like really engaging books that are a different way on um, sort of identifying what it is to be a different race in the United States and specifically from the perspective, from the male perspective. And because I work in a, in an all boys school, I think right now being immersed in boy culture is a new experience for me the past few years, um, obviously, because I'm not a boy. And so learning um, what boy culture is and, and then analyzing really current issues from that boy perspective is just something that I just, I feel like my mind is being blown all the time and I'm learning a ton. So it's very like work related answer and not fun at all, but it's just the I truth right now. Totally reasonable. No,
0: but You're reading in your work. If you're doing it right, blend together. I feel like Greg and I both would tell you right now that with this new project in the podcast, it's really hard to draw a line between our passions and our, our career sometimes. Yeah but um i don't think that's uncommon and i think we feel guilty for it and i'm not really sure that we should except in places where like it throws our life out of balance you know
1: yeah i think sometimes um you know when i'm with other family members like my parents or whomever and um, a lot of the people that I know personally who I have important relationships with they have a job and their job and their career may not be their passion and I think it sounds like three of us are very lucky that our job and our career align with our passion and so when people like oh how's life how's work and I'm like let me tell you about work it's so great there's all these awesome things happening and then I'm like how's work for you and they're like yeah it's terrible so (laughs) I think sometimes that can be tough in those personal relationships but aren't we lucky that um,
2: that we are where we are and that we've got a place for ourselves. Yeah, we are absolutely. certainly looking. We all we, we certainly are. So, um, Carrie, I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I feel really fortunate that our paths crossed many years later. I was telling Sean that our paths coincidentally crossed the other day on my street, which was a, a surprise to me, and that led to having you on the show, which was awesome. Um, so, Sean, any final thoughts before we go?
0: No, just thank you very much. I, I like the way that this conversation move from just like the school and educational base, but also I feel like a parent would get a lot out of this in terms of, you know, how we can go about addressing these topics with our kids. So, you know, that was a, I I don't know, I I feel like education when it's contained to the walls of school and our thinking isn't always getting a full picture. And I I think that maybe this conversation did a good job of that.
1: Yeah, thank you guys. I'm really honored to be on your podcast as it, as it, begins, It sounds like you guys are doing some great work with this.
0: The presenting sponsor of the So We've Been Thinking podcast is EdTech Teacher, leading change in changing times. For more information about our guests and resources mentioned within the podcast, please go to sowe'vebenthinking.com. If you'd like to propose a guest or a topic, please reach out to us on Twitter, where you can reach us at Greg Kulawick, at Sean McCusker, or send us a message on our So We've Been Thinking account.